Hello, Slim. Welcome to Wisdom of the Himalayan Tradition. Hi, Jerome. Thank you. It's, uh, it's good to be with you, sir. Yeah, so this episode, I'd like to talk a little bit about Ayurveda. And as you're one who has a great experience and training in that, if you don't mind, I will ask you a few questions and we'll see what uh, see where we can go from there. That sounds good, sir. Okay, so first of all, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in Ayurveda? Yeah, sure. Um, I, uh, I, I grew up in a military family, and um, when I was very young in my early 20s, I got sick, and I couldn't uh, find any doctors that could really help me or give me an accurate diagnosis, and there were things that um, were not uh, really clearly recognized back in the 1980s. Uh, Epstein-Barr was one of the things that I was dealing with, which is, was called back then the yuppie flu, and they called it chronic fatigue. They didn't really understand it, and um, that was back before they knew that this, this particular virus was, um, was mononucleosis, basically, and it could affect people in a chronic way. So at that point, um, when I couldn't find help, and I was in the military and getting shuffled around from doctor to doctor, I finally said, I've got to, you know, I got to look outside the medical community, the, the establishment that we're all used to, because they obviously don't have the ability to diagnose and help me. And it was at that point that I kind of started uh, reading about herbs and at that time, what would be considered alternative diets and uh, herbs, and then eventually got interested in traditional Chinese medicine. And then years later, uh, kind of started looking into classical Ayurveda that ranged from India and felt a stronger kinship and felt a stronger affinity for Ayurveda than I did any other uh, health system. And so I started studying it uh, more and more. And then uh, my wife and I ended up at the Himalayan Institute, living there for 12 years, where I studied uh, Ayurveda and Ayurvedic herbs and different treatments more. And then, um, and then after we left the Institute, uh, I studied more formally at the California College of Ayurveda in Northern California and um, kind of expanded my, my, my view and understanding of Ayurveda and its uh, philosophy and the various applications that, that it offers us. Great. Well, thank you for sharing a little bit of that background. Uh, so I want to ask you another question. So what is Ayurveda? Ayurveda is a, uh, the, the, it translates from Sanskrit literally as the science of life or the science of longevity. Um, it reigns from India and its origins uh, can be traced back uh, approximately 5,000 years. Elements of it a little bit um, uh, less than that. And some of it, when you get into the, um, the uh, oral tradition of Ayurveda, uh, that, that those components go back even further. And basically, it's, uh, it's, it is to India what uh, tra traditional Chinese medicine is to China, for instance. It's the system that, that 
evolved from India that was designed to help people understand health, life, longevity, and uh, how to take care of oneself. Thank you for that explanation. It is said that Ayurveda is a sister science of yoga. Um, do you want to speak on that a little bit, how those two connect? Yeah. Um, I think that um, they developed as systems that where Ayurveda was kind of concerned with how to take care of the physical body very specifically, um, how to make sure that one lived a healthy life. Um, and whereas yoga to me and the systems of yoga that I've studied in the traditions um, kind of refer more to one's uh, spiritual life. Um, of course, as you've told your, your followers um, many times before, yoga translates as um, union, um, huge to huge. And that, that aspect of, of union goes beyond what we think of yoga in, in the Western context right now is, you know, I think most people think of yoga as postures and asana, whereas yoga, um, you know, actually included meditation and a lot of other things and it's broader earlier definition. Um, so I think that one was dealing with our spiritual life and the other one was dealing with our, our, our physical life and well-being. And there's obviously going to be a merging of those two spheres where there's a, a lot of overlap. Um, for instance, the original texts of both were written in Sanskrit um, and they, they share the same foundation and the same principles as far as the five elements and, um, you, you know, the, the, the doshas are humors and, and things of that nature. So I think that they, um, one, to me, one, one system complements the other by way of supporting the other in its process. So I think studying Ayurveda and applying the, 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 the principles in terms of, of Ayurveda helps us with our yoga and by doing our, our yoga and our meditation and, and the things that we consider to be yoga, that actually helps us with the, the maintenance of uh, an application of our Ayurveda. Great. Um, and what would you say are some of the basic principles of Ayurveda? Like, how would you break it down in a simplistic way? The easiest way for me, sir, to, to kind of explain Ayurveda, the way I understand it and the way that I practice it, is as a, it's a perspective. Uh, it's a very, very clear lens to see the world, to see ourselves, to see ourselves within the world. Um, so there's a lot of different aspects of classical Ayurveda, um, but I think the 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 easiest way to, to to look at it initially is through the understanding that the rishis or the seers, um, these awakened ones who had the ability to see very deep into reality, they saw that the world is comprised of five elements, 
And it's a little bit different, similar, but a little bit different than the five elements of traditional Chinese medicine in that Ayurveda recognizes earth, water, fire, wind, and space. Whereas with Chinese medicine, um, the, the way that we stack the elements on top of each other from gross to subtle and then descending from, from subtle to gross, uh, to me, the, the five elements in TCM, uh, it's, it's more of a horizontal uh, complement. Um, so the way the, the way the Rishis looked at and, and understood the physical world is that uh, the, the, first, the first and most subtle um, element, uh, space, and that space provides, it is the element that provides the platform for all other elements to exist. Uh, without space, we couldn't have any of the other elements. So that's that's the most subtle and the most etheric. Uh, then you 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 travel down one layer, so to speak, one level, and we have air and and wind. And actually, air is more like space, whereas whereas wind uh, is is movement. Uh, wind is a little. We're getting into something that is a little more palpable, uh, a little more quantifiable and tangible and available to our senses and the naked eye. And then you come down to fire and which we can easily understand and look at as the power of transmutation. Um, and then we have water liquidity. Um, and then you come down to air or earth, uh, sorry, solidity and earth. Um, you know, is the most dense and hardest of the elements, whereas up at the top, air and space, um, that is uh, that is the, uh, the, the the most subtle. So that's that's kind of the five elements are, are where uh, Ayurveda kind of starts off. Um, within the the basic tenets of classical Ayurveda. These five elements get divided up and paired up and create different doshas. And most people in the yoga community have heard the word dosha before. Uh, there are three doshas in classical Ayurveda, Vata, Pitta, and Kapha. And each of these doshas, and interestingly, um, dosha literally translates as blemish from Sanskrit. Um, and you, I, I think that in in the West we've uh, we we experience the the culture embracing Ayurveda getting I think sometimes a little too hyper fixated on the doshas. They're they're good landmarks, but they are as 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 Ayurveda says they are blemishes. Um, so Vata is comprised of space and air or wind. Um, Pitta is composed primarily, probably 90% is the, is the percentage that I most commonly see referenced, um, and then 10% water. And then Kapha is comprised of water and earth. So in the same way that we looked at, um, if we were drawing a, a diagram on a whiteboard, 
um, space and, and ether um, would be at the top. Same thing with uh, going all the way down to Earth. Um, Vata is the most etheric and lightest of the three doshas, then Pitta, um, and then Kapha. Typically, Vata um, is that the qualities of Vata are cold and dry and light, um, kind of windy and mobile, uh, irregular, uh, rough. And um, we then look at Pitta, and Pitta is considered as the qualities of being hot and oily, light, um, liquid, mobile, um, sharp, soft, and smooth. And Kapha has the qualities of being more cool and wet and uh, also oily, um, but different than the, the oil of Pitta. But it's very dense and very, very static and very, very stabilizing. Um, so Ayurveda then looks not only at just our own personal constitution with Vata, Pitta, and Kapha, but it also looks at the time of life, you know, uh, the, the times that we're born into, the periods that. Uh, our middle life and the end of our life, also times of year. So the interesting thing and what was really appealing to me about Ayurveda is that it didn't just look at our constitution and help us understand our own personal constitution, but it helped us to understand how our constitution was affected by the world and how the world and the time of year and where we live geographically and so forth all have an effect on us and our constitution. And I think that you also see people in, in that get, initially get exposed to Ayurveda kind of rush to self-judge. And they, there's, a, there's a tendency to qualify oneself just as a, a I, oh, I am a Baka or I'm a Pitta or I'm a Kapha. When in reality, uh, if that would be impossible for an individual to be solely comprised of one dosha. All of us are amalgamations of all three doshas, and there are even sub-doshas. And what happens is that we are a, you know, our constitution ayurvedically is a physical manifestation of what's happening in this lifetime and who we are. And it's good to see that we may be predominantly a particular dosha, but not get too hung up and just qualify ourselves um, as a singular dosha. Thank you for that explanation. Uh, you're very concise. Uh, that That is a lot for people to take in, but I appreciate the way you explain that. There's one particular concept in Ayurveda, particularly his interest uh, to me, is ojas. And I'd like you just to speak a little bit on uh, the concept of ojas. Sure, absolutely. Ojas is a word that could most easily be translated as vigor. Um, it's said that when we are born, um, classical Ayurveda has this tenant that we are born with um, about uh, nine drops 
of pure uh, ojas inside of our body, inside of our heart. And this is known as para ojas. And para means beyond, kind of beyond comprehension, beyond this world, beyond our understanding, something that is greater and beyond. And so it's interesting. Classical Ayurveda understood that even though they didn't have the technology and the instrumentation that we uh, have access to today, they knew that the first organ in the human embryo that developed was the heart. And that, that heart is what contains these microfine uh, luminous drops of ojas. And what there's another type of ojas called apara ojas, meaning kind of that it's it's not that other worldly or that that ojas from beyond, but it's a more uh, earthly, earthly and more replaceable type of ojas. And classical Ayurveda says that when we are born uh, with these drops of ojas, this nectar, that being, this ojas is the kind of subtle essence that allows us to maintain a presence in our body. And that basically at the end of our life, whatever that may look like for each of us and how our lives personally unfold, when we use up that last fraction of uh, the, the last drop of ojas in our body, um, that is when the soul can no longer sustain its connection and union in the body and it moves on to its next stage. Um, so the, the concept of OGIS also, one of the things that we haven't, um, that we haven't talked about yet, but maybe, maybe it would be good for a, uh, you know, a, a more detailed uh, session at some point, the concept of, Datus or tissues. Um, and these are kind of different layers that exist within our system. Um, and so the, the, the system of Ayurveda acknowledges that when you take in some healthy food, um, the body basically will take this food and run it through seven stages of metabolism. And these seven levels of tissue and these seven datus each take the substance and purify it, break it down more, and condense and refine it more. Once, say for instance, you um, you have some butter or some ghee, which is considered by classical Ayurveda one of the best substances for building ojas inside of the body. And so that material, once we eat it, it goes through each layer of our seven tissues. And after refinement and redistillation and more distillation, it gets, it gets con condensed and rarefied down into um, once uh, it, it, it spends five days in each of the seven tissues. So at the very end of that stage, one one tiny drop of ojas can be produced, and that is um, the, the the end stage of our um, this process of 
a substance traversing its way through the datus, um, that becomes uh, reproductive fluid uh, in males and females. And when that reproductive fluid, uh, known as shukra, um, is not used or consumed, then it will be turned into ogis. And that process takes um, about 35 days. Um, ogis is also considered to be a substance that when it is concentrated and conserved um, inside of the human body, that it also, if it is not used reproductively or for overexpenditure uh, physically or mentally, and we're in, in good health, that gets transmutated into a really, really rare, more rarefied substance that becomes a kind of ogis that lives in our cerebral tissue. And that is where classical Ayurveda alludes to um, realized beings, sages, yogis, saints that have attained a very high level, um, and yoginis, of course. Um, when, when they've attained this high level, um, their ogis is actually something that is very subtly palpable, and you can feel it when you're around somebody who has um, spent a lot of time preserving and curating the substance inside of the body and uh, possibly meditating and leading a healthy lifestyle. Um, and what, what ogis ends up doing inside of the body beyond just kind of giving us um, if we're if we're lucky enough to see it get through to this final stage, a, a sense of spiritual understanding and spiritual presence and and luminosity, um, it also ogis acts as the the substance that provides us with immunity, uh, with strength. So um, if you have a robust immune system and lots of energy to burn. Um, it's said that this individual, or, or when we have that, that our ogis is, is operating at a good level. Um, I was, we were speaking about um, dosha and how people tend to get hung up on the kind of, again, in reality, the way Ayurveda originally kind of presented itself. The, the doshas were, were, were seen as blemishes, right? They were seen as something that was kind of negative. So ideally, what we want to be able to do is take the, the air and space that is vata, and we want to lower that. We want to take the, 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 the excess heat and, and a little bit of hot water that is pitta and lower that. And also... Hatha, the, the, the earth and the water that is, you know, um, presenting itself to us like as uh, a, in the form of inertia or sometimes sloth. These are all negative attributes. And the, the, the ultimate goal of Ayurveda is to lower the doshas, but increase what I like to call the three treasures. Um, and that's kind of like the flip side. There is a duality to dosha. And like I said, people just think of dosha as... Um, very one-dimensional, but the other side of dosha is the three tre is, is each of the three treasures. Now, when 
when air and ether are in their stable, harnessed, balanced form, rather than manifesting as vata, uh, air and ether will manifest as prana. And so that's what we're looking for, is to increase prana in our body, but make sure that we are lowering vata. We want to increase prana. And if you have too much prana, it's an imbalance, uh, in an imbalanced form, that can lead to an exacerbation or a vitiation of vata. Same thing of the fire and the water elements that make up pitta. We, we see those in, in the form of pitta, but when, it, when our water and fire are in balance, are in harmony, and working in a form of existence inside the body that is equilibrated and that we are in a state of equilibrium, um, that, that pitta in a more uh, benevolent form, or those elements in a more benevolent form, we see those manifest as Agni, and Agni translates as fire, and that's the, the, the second of the three treasures. Um, and we need Agni. We need Agni to digest our food, to digest emotions, to digest thoughts and concepts, and Agni is a very important thing, but Agni is, is discernible. It's different than Pitta, even though they, they share the, the same elements. And then finally, the other side of Kapha when you're looking at earth and water is ojas and ojas is um it's grounding it helps us with uh, like i said our immune system strength endurance um our ability to um uh be uh, what's the what's the word to be um sorry the the word just escaped me but um, resilient. Um, there's a certain type of physical strength and resilience that OGIS provides. So OGIS, in my in my way of looking at Ayurveda and understanding it, um, OGIS is one of the three treasures that we should try to cultivate on a regular basis. Great. Well, thanks for that that detailed explanation. And I have a couple personal questions to, uh, to ask you too before we, before we, uh, you know, prepare for our next part two. This is, we'll just call this part one, and then we'll do a part two. But one of the questions I personal question I want to ask you is, what are some of your favorite Ayurvedic herbs? Maybe ones that you use or have experience with. That's a that's a great question, sir. I've got a lot of uh, herbs that I use from the. Uh, the Indian Materia Medica, and one of my favorites is, since we were just talking about Ojas, is Ashwagandha. Uh, and Ashwagandha is hailed in classical Ayurveda as an herb that has the ability to build Ojas inside of the body. Um, Ashwagandha literally translates as, from Sanskrit, as that which gives the smell of a horse. And while that might sound like something you don't necessarily want to ingest, um, it actually is because the, the, the meaning behind the name is that it will actually give you the ability to perform like a horse. And that means in, in terms of strength and stamina, 
um, and uh, and also virility, because horses are are you know known, known to be uh, a virile um, animal with great strength and great ogis. Um, but the nice thing to me, what I really like about this particular herb is that it's suitable for all uh, constitutions, whether somebody is vata, pitta, or kapha predominant. Um, any of those constitutions and combinations can really safely use it. Um, there is, uh, there's a lot of contemporary research that's been done on ashwagandha. Uh, it's, it's Latin name is Withania somnifera. And interestingly, it's, it's in the, in the West, it's considered to be an adaptogen and, and adaptogens are a category of herb that literally help. Uh, the body to adapt to stress and to stressors, whether they're internal or external. And um, the interesting, the other, the other thing that's I think notable here is that uh, ashwagandha is also referred to a lot of times as Indian ginseng. And um, the, the thing about ginseng, which is Panax ginseng, which is famously used in traditional Chinese medicine. There's also American ginseng, which is a little cooler, not as hot. Um, the ginseng species medicinally, botanically tend to be more stimulating and uh, more pitta on the system than, um, than a lot of other tonic herbs and, and much more so than uh, ashwagandha. The nice thing about ashwagandha is that it's very, very balanced as a tonic herb, as an adaptogen. With ginseng, you have to make sure that you don't take too much of it because it can actually be hyper-stimulating. Um, give you too much air, uh, energy, make you somewhat irritable. Um, and um, people who have taken too much ginseng, um, there's a there's a uh, there's a condition that is known as gas or ginseng abuse syndrome, where somebody actually just gets too hyper-stimulated. Um, and they're taking too much of it and they need to back it off. You don't typically, I've never had that happen in my own practice. I've never had that happen in my own personal life. And the reason why is because I believed that ashwagandha as a tonic and as an adaptogen helps each individual um, find their own personal level of equilibrium because that's going to be different from person to person. And ashwagandha, the, the studies that have been done in modern times have shown that it has the ability to help individuals relax. And as we were talking about the, the Latin name, Withania somnifera, uh, somnus is Latin for sleep. And a lot of Ayurvedic practitioners, there's specific ways to use ashwagandha to enhance the quality of sleep. And... Um, so for, for me personally, I think ashwagandha is definitely one of my favorite Ayurvedic herbs. Um, and uh, in today's world, with all the stressors that we put upon ourselves and the external world puts upon us, um, who doesn't need to refine and reach a higher state, a more balanced state of equilibrium? and balance within ourselves and 
create more of this amazing, beautiful substance inside of the body called OGIS that helps us relax, that gives us more strength, that gives us more energy, more mental clarity. And, and in theory, uh, and I also believe in practice, has the ability to uh, extend our lifespan. Well said. And uh, just one more personal question, and I'll let you off the hook. Um, <laughs> well, you referenced earlier, and I just want to go back to that. You mentioned it briefly in your in, a, in introduction. But so, what is your connection with the Himalayan tradition? Would uh, you like to share a little bit of any personal uh, points of reference you want to mention in, in your journey and your your connection with the Himalayan tradition? Absolutely. Um, as somebody who's getting ready to turn 55, um, for the past uh, 21, 22 years, the Himalayan tradition has played a really significant role in my life. Um, when I was in my, my early 30s, I was the production manager for an herbal extract company called Gaia Herbs. And every year, Gaia has a used to have a symposium it's now put on by somebody else but the 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 medicines from their symposium used to be exclusively sponsored by Gaia and um so I was giving a talk at this symposium and somebody uh approached me a gentleman named Blair Lewis um who today is still a, a good friend uh and a special person in my life um, and Blair approached me and started talking to me about meditation and a little bit about the Himalayan Institute and its founder, Swami Rama, and uh, his, his kind of, uh, I would say, chief disciple, uh, student, Pandit Rajmani Tiganaya. And um, he really piqued my curiosity. And uh, we talked for a little while. We talked about herbs. And he said, well, let me send you, uh, let me send you a couple of books. Uh, from the Himalayan Institute and um, see what you think. See if it's something you're interested in. And one of the books that he sent was uh, an iconic book that we're both really familiar with uh, called Living with the Himalayan Masters by Swami Rama. And that I just, I just did one of those, um, one of those exercises where I said, okay, this came in the mail. Let me just, I'm going to open up to a page and read it a little bit and see what kind of feeling I get. And um, I did that, and it was mind-blowing. And um, I just started reading a little bit of that book uh, every night, and then eventually made it to the Himalayan Institute, and um, Blair introduced us to Pandaji. Um, and we eventually um, were taught how to meditate, and were given a mantra from the, from the tradition, and um, it really, really worked and resonated and we ended up living at the, at the, moving to the Himalayan Institute within six, eight months of that. And uh, we never expected, that I, I've never lived in any one place for longer than like three or four years at a time. And uh, my wife, Alina, and I lived at the Himalayan Institute for more than 12 years. And uh, we go back periodically to reconnect with uh the, the institute as a place um, and the teachers there and um, uh, the tradition itself. And uh, I, I marvel at 
the positive effect that it's had on my life and my my wife's life and um um it's uh it's been a blessing and a gift and we're really grateful to 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 have the himalayan tradition um woven so heavily through our experiences of life in the last 22 23 years great well just in my personal experience of knowing you and Elena for so many years, you're definitely a great representatives of the tradition. It's always inspiration to, to talk with you, to be in your guys' company. And I really appreciate you giving us your time today to join us on this podcast. And I'm glad you mentioned somewhere along the line about a part two, because I would love to have you back on the uh, podcast again. And maybe next time we'll get maybe get more into practical aspects of Ayurveda, like how practitioners use it in their day-to-day lives. That would that would be something I'd like to follow up with with you in another podcast. Um, but again, thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us. And any last words you have? Thank you, sir. It's, uh, it's, it's totally my pleasure. And that sounds great. I'd love to do it. Um, to try and talk about the full entire spoke the scope of classical Ayurveda in, um, you know, 45 minutes is of course impossible. And, uh, it's a, it's a pleasure. And thanks for being a beacon of the tradition and, and, and having me on your, your, uh, your podcast. Thanks. Thank you. And uh, we'll sign off now, but we'll talk again soon. Sounds good. Thank you, Jerome.